Well, amen and good morning. Good to be back with you again today. Uh, we are in a series on the Minor Prophets um, where we're taking no more than three weeks for each of them. There are 12. We have crossed off the list Jonah, which was a lot of fun. We've crossed off the list Amos, which was not a lot of fun, but uh, we got it done. And now we're going to be in Hosea. So find your way to Hosea chapter 1. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, you probably know that it is about the relationship or the marriage between uh, the prophet of God, Hosea, and a woman named Gomer. Here's what I want us to understand from the first moment of this series. It is not actually about their marriage. What is more true is that their marriage is about God and his people right? So Hosea and Gomer's marriage is going to be a picture of God and us. And we have to understand that from the beginning of this book. Uh, It begs an important question that we have to answer first. Why does the Bible so often use the image of marriage to talk about our relationship with God? Have you noticed this scripturally? This is a recurring theme in scripture that the Bible regularly uses this image of marriage to talk about us in Jesus, us in God. Uh, Think about famous passage like on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, one of the most famous passages on marriage, uh, where the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage. And you will note in Ephesians 5.21, he commands husbands to submit to their wives out of their reverence for Christ. Uh, And then later he encourages wives to do the same thing. Now, some of you all think I got that backwards and I just misspoke because you, like me, was raised in a church where I was taught that submission is uniquely the role of wives, but that is not at all what Paul is saying in that passage. Um, I'm really passionate about that passage and about interpreting it correctly. So what we've done is we have posted a bonus content video all about Ephesians 5 and submission in marriage and who has to submit to whom um, in marriage. So it's online right now wherever you watch Pulpit Rock stuff. So check it out if you're at all curious about what Paul actually says in that passage, because it's not at all what we maybe commonly would understand. The truth of what Paul says, hey, did I get a woo? All right. Um, The truth of what Paul says is that marriage is this relationship of mutuality and caretaking and mutual submission and intimate oneness, and it is not at all a relationship of power and control like we sometimes treat it. And then at the end of that chapter, he's talked all about the stuff in marriage, and he ends it by saying, all this is a mystery, meaning like oneness in marriage and mutuality and mutual submission and love, all of that is a mystery, but I'm talking about Jesus in the church. And so he says, all this stuff on marriage is really not about marriage. It's actually about how Jesus loves us and how we are to love him in return. So that is all over the scriptures, that marriage is somehow about God and us. Why is that? Why is that the metaphor that is so frequently used? We have to understand that if we're going to understand what's happening in the book of Hosea. And I think to understand that metaphor, we have to understand why God put that tree in the Garden of Eden. You know that tree, like the one where he's like, hey, don't eat this tree, you'll die. And he puts it right in the middle of the garden. Why did he do that? Bear with me. I'm going to connect a whole bunch of themes in a short amount of time here. Um, So Adam and Eve, when God creates Adam and Eve, he places them in the Garden of Eden. It is presumed that they are like married, right? Like there wasn't a wedding, there wasn't a wedding ceremony, but it's presumed that like they're together, 
right? That's a thing. Like, they're, they're a thing. That's where the verse about leaving your father and mother and cleaving to your spouse appears. So it's Adam and Eve are a couple. We would all acknowledge that. So before sin enters the world, there is marriage, there is love, there is sex. That's going to be really relevant next week. We're going to come back and we're going to have to talk a whole lot about sex. Uh, I'm sorry ahead of time, but it's going to be worth it. We're going to talk about some really important things. Um, If you're going to miss it, like I know, like the women's retreat is the next weekend, right? So there's going to be all sorts of women who miss it. Catch up online because it's really important, but I digress. Back to Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They're, They're in love with each other. And into this love story, God places a tree. And he says, don't eat anything from that tree or you're gonna die. Hindsight is 2020. Feels like a mistake, doesn't it? Like, was there, like, I don't know how God, like, planned it. Is there, like, a brainstorming meeting in heaven? Where he's like, here's an idea. What if we put a tree in the garden that kills them? And the angels are like, well, that's a horrible idea, but he's God. You're not going to disagree with God. Why did he do that? It goes back to something that we've been talking about this entire series that we have to understand if we're really going to get the tone and the emotional energy of the prophets. And it is this idea that God has a dream, a dream for us and for him. It is this dream that we were created for as humans. It is the dream that we all deeply long for, whether we know it or not. It's what he says in Exodus 19. He says, listen, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And though the whole earth belongs to me, you will be for me this kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He says, that's what I'm longing for. There's all of you and all of me. It's this relationship with him of love and intimacy, relationship with one another of love and intimacy, and all of us together and all of him together, healthy dependence on him, interdependence in a healthy way with one another. That dream of God is not at all about control or fear. Those things are incompatible because that dream is about voluntary love. That is what the dream of God is about. And so this idea that God would like threaten us into obeying is totally incompatible with the dream of God. Or the idea that God would like control us like we didn't have a choice, like we're robots, totally incompatible with the dream of God. Uh, The dream of God is this intimate, voluntary love with his people. So the tree is put in the middle of the Garden of Eden. It's more than just a tree. It was the option to not choose God. And if we as humans didn't have that option, then it would never truly be voluntary love. And so as risky as it was to put that tree in the garden, had he not put that tree in the garden, then the dream of God could have never come to fruition. That he would love us and that we, from our hearts, would love him. Because we would have never had a choice. That brings us back to the issue of marriage. Uh, Is marriage about behavior or heart? Think about that. Is marriage about like doing all the right behaviors or is it about having your heart in the right place? Um, So like, give you an example. Like if my wife, uh, if she comes home to me one day and says, listen, you know what makes me feel loved? Buying me flowers. That that makes me feel loved. I'm like, okay, fine. So I go to the store every day and I buy some flowers and I come home and I say, here's your stupid flowers. (laughs) Hope you're happy. Boo, yeah. Is she going to feel loved by that? No. Even though I'm doing the right behavior, my heart is clearly not in it. Now, the reverse is also true, right? If I come home every day and I say, Becky, you know, I was thinking about buying you flowers today, and I did not, 
buy you flowers. Like, I have never bought you flowers. I've never bought you flowers, but I think about it all the time, and it's the thought that counts, isn't it? My heart's in the right place. Is she going to feel loved by that? No. Because in our most intimate relationship, it's not one or the other, but it's the, the merging of these two. It's about having a loving heart towards your spouse and the behaviors that back it up and match the heart. That is why Marriage is such a perfect image of our relationship with God because we know God loves us this way. He loves us from his heart. He cares deeply about us. He thinks about us. But also, he sacrificed everything for us. He died on a cross for us. And so it's the merging of of the heart and the behaviors with us. And what he wants from us is that we would love him in the same way, that we would love him from our heart voluntarily, but that also we would love him uh, with our actions. And so marriage doesn't work without both, and our relationship with God doesn't work without both. The, The relationship that God ultimately wants with you and I is not one that is fearful or dutiful or obligatory. That's why he put the tree in the Garden of Eden, because it was more more than just the behavior, had to be voluntary. But also the reverse is true. That's why Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah when he looks at the Pharisees and he says, these people honor me with their heart or with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's saying, you're doing all the behaviors, but your heart's not in it, so it doesn't matter because it is like your most intimate relationship. The two have to go together, just like it does in marriage. So God wants his people to think of their relationship with him with that level of intimacy. God wants us to love him like the love that spouses would have for each other in a healthy marriage. That's what he's after. God doesn't just want our behavior. He wants our hearts too. That's central to his dream. Now let's look at Hosea. Hosea is a book written in the time when the people's hearts and behavior were far from God, right? So they were in both categories, missing it. The relationship between God and his people was so deeply broken at this time. He wanted them to see just how much he longed for them as his people. Uh, So they maybe returned to his love. And so to illustrate that, he goes to the prophet Hosea and he asks Hosea to step into a very dysfunctional, one-sided marriage. And this marriage, it does two things. One, the less important thing is it describes what God often gets from us, which is far less than the voluntary love that he so deeply desires. But the more important thing it does is it describes for us what we often get from God or what we always get from God, which is this never-failing, faithful love in the face of all of our struggles. That's what we get from God and is the most powerful force the universe. So, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So those are the kings of the southern kingdom during that same time. And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So Hosea historically comes after Jonah. Amos both wrote during the time of Jeroboam. He is a prophet mostly to the northern kingdom, but a little bit to everybody. Um, He does his work immediately prior to the moment when Assyria is going to sweep in and just wipe out the northern kingdom. Um, And so the end is coming, and God is beginning to explain to these people, hey, here's the problem. Here's what has been happening. So to illustrate what has happened, here's what he asks. Verse 2. 
When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. All right, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, this is like probably worth noting. Like from the beginning of time, there has been a sexual double standard between men and women. Uh, so women who have a lot of sex are called promiscuous in a whole host of other words that are far more derogatory and meant to dehumanize women. Um, men who have a lot of sex are often given a pass. They're just boys being boys, right? Um, and so with that backdrop of the cultures that we have all lived in, like you read this, God's saying, go marry a promiscuous woman. And it, it's like, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable that our God is calling her this name. Um, if you feel that too, it's okay. Um, I, what I want to assure you is this. God has no such double standard. That is not actually what's happening here. That, is, that double standard is a human invention. God, on the other hand, God is a big fan of sexual fidelity. He is for it, and he does not give anyone a pass on sexual fidelity, least of all men. And uh, that, he's not just picking on this woman, he's pointing something out. But to prove it, that he doesn't have this double standard, turn over just a couple pages to Hosea chapter 4, verse 14. Here's God speaking, and he points this out. He says, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because... The men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So God says, I'm not going to punish these girls because look at these boys. They're doing the exact same thing. And none of you understand what is happening here with the sexual problems that you're having. So God doesn't have that double standard. New Testament example of this, John chapter 8, the Pharisees famously show up to Jesus and they have with them in tow a woman caught in adultery. Um, now that particular sin we understand involves always at least two people. Where's the man caught in adultery? I don't know. This is the double standard. Here's this woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. Punish her. Tell us what to do with her. And God of the universe steps in to this poor woman and protects her. Not because she didn't do anything wrong, but because he doesn't have that double standard. And punishment was not actually his goal in that case. It was restoration that was his goal. And so my point is just this. I would suggest God has always hated that double standard of sexual ethics between men and women. And it's actually weak men and insecure women who propagate that double standard. It's not God. That's not what God is doing here in the second verse of Hosea. He's simply telling the truth. He's saying to Hosea, hey, here's this woman, Gomer. Her struggle is with sexual fidelity. But here's the point of what he's saying. Nevertheless, Hosea, I want you to love her. Nevertheless, she struggles with this thing. I want you to love her anyway and love her well. So he does. Verse 3. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Um, now, Hosea and Gomer, they're going to have three children together. God names these children. I don't know if this was like the name that they went by or if they had nicknames, but nevertheless, he names these children as kind of uh, like a, a description of what has gone wrong with Israel. So verse 4, the first child is a son. I call him Jezreel. 
because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So Jezreel was a town where a man named Jehu murders the entire family of King Ahab. And you can read the story in 2 Kings 9 and 10. 2 Kings is like the history. Hosea is giving the commentary. The commentary is God wasn't super pleased with that. So then they have another child, a daughter. God says this, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. I suspect if you're a little girl... Um, growing up with the name not loved is pretty tough. Like I, like I hope, I, this is not the point of the thing, but I hope, like I'm like, please tell me they gave her a nickname or something else that they'd call her by, um, because that's a tough one. The point God is saying here is, I, so I'm going to spare the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom I am totally removing my presence from. I, it's as if I don't even love them. They are on their own. Then they have another son. God says, call him Loami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. There's something heartbreaking in those words, especially if you remember what we've been reading, Exodus 19, where God says, out of all the nations, you will be for me a treasured possession, my people. That dream that God had, that longing of God's heart is gone. Now, we need to remember these names because they're going to be relevant here in just a minute. But the point that God is making with these names is that this relationship is forever broken. It is forever gone. It's been catastrophically broken. And through Hosea, God is basically giving them the explanation as to why. Turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, he describes some things that have happened. And he describes it in such an interesting way. Um, Look at verse 8. He says, she has not acknowledged, and the she is Israel, we understand in that, so he's talking about this nation. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So God says, like, in my faithfulness, because I loved them, I gave these people so much And they took what I have given them and they used it to worship Baal. Now, Baal is a Canaanite fertility god. Uh, The name Baal actually just means, in Hebrew, it means master. And God says, listen, because of this idolatry where I, like I gave you stuff and you used it in the worship, like you made this false god your master, verse nine, therefore, I'll take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lover. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lover's. I'll make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I'll punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baal. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. So he's saying, I'm going to take back. Like, I've given her so much, I'm going to take it all back. And I don't, like, like, this is intense language of desire and longing and betrayal. 
Um, it, it is romantic betrayal is what he's describing. It's as if he's like, listen, I bought you flowers every day and you took the flowers that I gave to you and you gave them to another man. And so because of that, I'm going to take those flowers back. You're going to be on your own for a while. And he's showing us God is this intense longing and desire that he has for his people. And he's also letting us get a glimpse of the pain in his heart, the betrayal that he feels when we reject him. Does it make you uncomfortable hearing God talk this way? It makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, I mean, it's, this is very, uh, you know, romantic language and romantic betrayal. The all-powerful God feeling this way, this much pain from us, I'm uncomfortable with that. But the thing about voluntary love is it's voluntary, right? God doesn't have to love us. This is not some, like, he didn't fall in love with us. He chose, I will love these people. And that is a choice to feel pain when we reject him and when we give our love to other things. So I think part of the, part of the lesson of this, um, and I think this is a human experience, we've all had this, if you have ever given your love to something that in the final analysis may not have been worthy of it? And you felt that betrayal from someone? I mean, gosh, God is so intimately aware of that emotion. And it's hard to hear that pain from God. Um, but I think we need to get this. This is not just intended to make us, his people, feel bad about our betrayal. Like part of it is, is really intended to make us realize just how deeply he desires us. Just how deeply he longs for us. Because you don't feel betrayal if there's not deep, deep love. You don't. So he's talking about his betrayal, but he turns the page in verse 14 and he starts talking about that desire that he has and what is going to happen one day. He says, therefore... I'm now going to allure her. I'll lead her into the wilderness, speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. And you probably get this, but you know we, we are the her in this verse, um, all of us, like, and it's really quite beautiful, isn't it? Like this God who says, uh, yeah, you're out there doing other stuff. I'm going to woo you back to me. There's going to be a day where you don't think of me as your master trying to control you, but you think of me as your loving husband and the heart and the actions and all that stuff will line up again. What's really fascinating about this verse in Hebrew is the word for master, as I mentioned, is Baal. So it's actually the name of the idol that they would worship all throughout the Old Testament. Um, and part of the lesson here is like these idols, whatever they are, they wound up controlling the people of God. And so God is stepping in and saying, well, that, that's, you were never meant to have a master. That's not what this is about. You were never intended to have a master like you were slaves. You were intended to have a loving husband. That's what I want for you. That's my dream. By the way, it's not the point of the sermon, but gentlemen, the fact that our God, the God of the universe, puts master on one end of the spectrum and husband on the other end of the spectrum tells us a lot about what we need to know about being a husband, 
about what it is and what it's not, right? Because those two things in God's mouth are mutually exclusive, master and husband. God says that you weren't meant to have a master. You were meant to have a husband, which is the opposite. This relationship between God and us was never meant to be a master-slave thing. It was supposed to be about mutuality and intimacy and vulnerability like a marriage. That's what it was intended to be about. So here we see God um, doing a couple things. And we're going to pause here uh, in the book of Hosea. But it, like, like it's obvious he's talking about his deep pain with these people. That's part of this. But he's also talking about that one day when it's not going to be like this. He's talking about that one day when this dynamic of control and fear is going to go away. And what's going to be left is this beautiful dance of voluntary love. That's really what this book is about. It's about the pain of God, the longing of God, and this hope that one day God and his people would find themselves like a married couple, loving each other. What do we do with this? How do we apply it? Uh, If you've been reading Hosea, I want to encourage you with this. I think a big part of Hosea is not about action steps, so it's not like, oh, oh, I should go do this. I think a lot of it is about helping us see God for who he is, helping us see that relationship in an accurate way. So let me just point out a couple of things that we should see, some implications that just probably need to sit in our heart a little bit so that we view it this way. Um, Here's the first, and I said this before, but it's obvious. God wants our hearts, not just our behavior. God wants our hearts, not just our behavior. I think this is something that's easy scripturally to get confused about, isn't it? Because there's passages that you'll read in the Bible, like where there's all these commandments and and like judgment and punishment language. And sometimes it's easy to walk away from the Bible with a sense that like God, he really just wants us to stop misbehaving. Like he really is just like so frustrated. Just stop all that sin, you guys. Here's the thing. There is a thread, if you'll see it, from the first page of our Bibles to the last that suggests that that has never been his point. He's always been after so much more. And I love how Hosea frames that, or frames that thread. He, he says, God doesn't want to be our master. He wants to be our husband. And when we focus just on the behavior and just God wants us to stop all that sinning, we've actually turned God into a master instead of the loving husband that he says he is. Let's jump out of the marriage metaphor and jump into a parenting metaphor. So God says, I'm your loving husband, not your master. But also God, other places, says, I'm your father. You're my children, right? Um, So Jesus tells the prodigal son story. I think this is what he is getting at there. Remember, the prodigal son story is a father. There's two sons. The younger son goes off and does like all of the sins. Like he just checks every box when it comes to sinning. Now, the older son has the opposite strategy. He stays home and he does all of the, he obeys all of the rules. He checks every box on every rule that could ever be invented, right? Both sons missed out on the love of their father, didn't they? It wasn't like one son got the love of the father and the other one didn't. They both missed out on the love of their father. So let me say something that I think is a point of that parable, but it may be hard for us to accept, but we have to accept it. Sometimes our obedience can be as big of a barrier to our relationship with God as our sin. Feels like I just said something wrong, doesn't it? Sometimes, though, our obedience can be as big of a barrier to our relationship with God as our sin. Because if we are just obeying God as a master, it still isn't what we were created for in Eden. Still isn't. 
That's the story of the older brother, obeying his father like he was a master, and that wasn't what his father wanted. Now, obviously, I'll say this caveat. Um, Obedience is far better from the perspective of earthly consequences than sin. Like, honestly, obeying God is wise, and it usually helps us avoid some trouble in our life. Um, But what we see with the older brother is, like, his prideful self-preservation It may have kept him safer than his younger brother, but ultimately it still robbed him of experiencing the love of his father. He didn't have a father. He had a master, and he was a slave. That's how he related to him. Now hear me, I'm not saying we shouldn't obey. I'll say that one more time, we should obey. I'm just suggesting we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking obedience is the point because it's not. It never was. Love is the point. Intimacy with God, that is the point. That is what has always been the point. And I think this is the reality of this parable and really of what Hosea is saying is our obedience is either gonna be a byproduct of our love for God or it's gonna be an idol that we worship instead of God. And I don't see a lot of middle ground between those two. We're either obeying as a byproduct to our love for God or we're obeying as an idol instead of loving God. And so when we read this book, it's full of God's pain and betrayal by the people who obeyed idols instead of worshiping him. It's full of his longing for these people. I think we just need to let that get to us a little bit. It's our heart that he's after. That's always been what he's been after, not just our obedience. And what he promises these people is there's coming a day. There's coming a day when that love, that heart, love from your heart will be the focus. He says, one day, you're not going to call me master. You're going to call me husband because that's what I've always been after. And that's maybe where we'll close today. I think this is an implication that we need to wrestle with. That day that God's talking about, it is today. That day where we see him as he is, where we embrace the relationship as he intended it to be, that is today. You remember God names these children of Hosea and Gomer's. um, In the last two he names, you are not loved and you are not my people. And he's trying to illustrate that. But he also says this to them. One day, he says in verse 23 of chapter 2, I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you're my God. So God says, listen, your name may be not loved, your name may be not my people today, but there's a day where I'm going to forever change that name and you will never be called that again. Do you remember the start of this year? I mean, it feels like a million years ago, but the start of 2021, we were studying 1 Peter. Peter walks with Jesus. He's wrestling with what does the gospel mean for us? How does it change everything for us? Um, and Gary Cantwell, one of our elders, was preaching out of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is describing what it means for us collectively to be gospel people. And he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's straight out of Exodus 19. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. He is renewing that promise of Exodus 19 that you are God's nation. And then he says, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's saying that day that Hosea promised, that day that Hosea said, it's going to be totally flipped on his head, that day has come. 
That day is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that day that God allures us and speaks tenderly to us so that we can return to him as a loving husband, not a controlling master. That day is today. You know, I don't know how you feel reading all these uh, Old Testament prophets. It's pretty harsh stuff, a lot of coming judgment and all that sort of stuff. You know, as we read the prophets, we have to, in the back of our mind, have the New Testament and have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to realize this. There's a lot of judgment in the prophets, but the plan of God was never judgment. That was never the plan. The, The plan was never to punish us and get us to turn to him. And it's a good thing because you see, it really didn't work. Like the people never turned to God. That was never the plan. Judgment was never the plan. The plan was Jesus. It was always the plan that Jesus would come. Not not that God would scare us with punishment, but that he would allure us with Jesus. That's a good thing because the judgment punishment never once, never once has produced an intimate, vulnerable voluntary love. So today, I think I just want us to sit as we close in the implication of this gospel that Peter points out and connects to Hosea. We live in a day where we do not have to fear punishment because we live in a a day where God, our loving husband, on the cross said, I'll take it. I'll take all the punishment, all of that judgment that I was telling you about in Hosea. I will take it all so that you can just be loved and just be my people. That is the day that we live in. That was the plan all along, is to allure you with his love. He did that so that we could see he's never, never been our master. He's always been our loving husband. His voice is the one alluring you, speaking tenderly to you. And he is calling you once again to return to our first love. So what do we do with this? You know, honestly, I think we just, I think we just love him back, you know. I think we just let ourselves be allured. Let ourselves hear his tender words to us. Realize he is our husband, not our master ruling over us. And so God, our loving husband, we come to you. And God, I'll admit, it's weird to think of you as a husband. The master thing makes more sense to my heart sometimes, but God, I see that that's never what you wanted for us. And so God, I just pray that as a people that we would lean in to the love that you have for us that we would avoid thinking obedience is the whole point of this thing. And that we would just rest in your tender words for us. We thank you for the day that we live in. We thank you that we are your holy people. That we are loved. We are chosen. And we love you back, Lord. Amen.